This is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. I've been dying to do this for years. Oh, that was a disappointing pop. <laughs> oh, that was really a disappointing pop, man. I almost want to start over. <laughs> you know, Take the first, two. what, uh, was that the first episode we recorded that had, like... It was me and you. It was me and you, and we had it, like, three or four times. But like, there was one that was crisp. just oh, yeah, so just crisp and perfect. But, so, this week... We headed down to Three Lakes Wildlife Management Area uh, to join Jim Hasley and Brian Irish the night ahead of yet another small game hunt with the Florida chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Although this time the focus has switched from the tasty tree rat to the elusive bobwhite quail. The bobwhite gets its name from the familiar call that you can sometimes hear echo through the vast pine stands of the southeastern United States. Three Lakes Wildlife Management Area was chosen this week because it's one of five management areas across the state of Florida that features a quail enhancement area that features favorable land management activities beneficial to bobwhite quail. So, Jim, um, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Brian, why don't you go first? You're more entertaining anyway. <laughs> well, I'm a, somewhat of a, a rookie hunter. Um, I actually got in introduced to it from my dog so uh i have a six-year-old visla uh hungarian pointer also known as and uh you know uh, we actually got him as a family dog and and before we brought him home and i was kind of researching the history of the breed and saw you know what what they do best and is hunt small game and uh really got intrigued by it talked to the breeder about it and they they hunted you know the dogs and uh their kennel and uh anyway they they kind of uh showed me the way a little bit and then i got introduced to a couple of the tampa bay vishla club and then navda which is uh, the north american versatile hunting dog association and uh, it's really just a bunch of guys that that train their dogs together and uh got introduced to people who hunt out here in the woods and they showed me the way and next thing i know i'm I'm out here about every weekend, so uh, it's been quite an experience. This dog has has got me into it, and uh, I'm hooked. Awesome. That's you know I've always wanted to hunt quail uh, over a dog. I've had uh, some experience quail hunting when I was stationed at Fort Campbell, but we didn't have a dog, so we had a flush man and a shooter, and we knew where the cubbies were, and we just did our best, and it was absolutely awful <laughs> trying to get through the briars and everything else. You know, you know, you you think. If you're not the first one to walk through, you're like, man, this is easy, you know. We just, I'm just, he'll come out here and shoot. I'm gonna go in there and and uh, flush up some quail, and we'll switch. And then the first switch after that, when you're like, you gotta, you, have you had enough of this? Because I, I don't want to go back in there. <laughs> it's uh, it's brutal. Yeah, it is brutal. It's uh, I've I've learned a lot about you know being in the woods and myself out here. You know when you kind of not coming from a a hunting background. You know you envision quail hunting and this you know beautiful picturesque field and it's a nice leisurely walk and uh you know my first hunt 
I think it was maybe either Bull Creek or Triple N, another wildlife management area in the area. And uh, you learn real quick that uh, the quail don't always just sit in the, the nicest areas, you know, and uh, you got to, you know, work for it. You got to work for it. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun learning experience for me. So, Jim, I know you've been on the podcast before. Uh, you were in Texas with Jordan. And uh, I don't remember if you talked about, you know, what, what uh, you do with BHA or any of that stuff before. We touched a little bit on it. I am the, what's my title? Central Florida Vice Chairman. And I guess my area of responsibility is everything north of Route 70. We pick that because that's where the, the turkey line is, so to speak. And I think it's 48 runs uh, east-west. So basically south of Ocala. And what what I try to do is recruit people to BHA and talk about our message, um, about the importance of public land as a resource because it belongs to all of us. Uh, I really enjoy the R3 part of our duties, which is going out and trying to recruit new people into the field, but also retain existing hunters, um, and then also reactivate folks that perhaps haven't been in the woods for a while. Uh, a lot of what we do is, is a big part of what we do is schedule these small game hunts just to give people the opportunity to come out, get after it in a relatively easy setting with relatively high success rates. And the best part about small game hunting is the social aspect, right? Where whitetail hunting is fantastic. If you're successful, there's this great payload for the freezer where if you knock down 12 squirrels, which is a banner day, you got about three meals, but you, you're not going to get out and yuck it up. And the greatest thing about even quail hunting and what I really love about it, and Brian has ruined me because he'll be really modest, but as far as wild birds go, his Vesla Murphy has killed more birds than cancer. Um, it's, a real, <laughs> it's a real pleasure to hunt behind that dog. Uh, incredibly disciplined, just will lock up on point and is like a rock. Um, it's a real pleasure. And, and, and the great thing I like about that is watching the dog and then also being able to, you can literally yell back and forth to each other and tell jokes and it doesn't really matter because the dog's doing all the work. So as you guys can hear in the background right now, we are out here. When I say we traveled down to Three Lakes Wildlife Management Area, we're in the woods. I heard a car go past. You may hear some yahoos on four wheelers. We'll try and edit that out. Maybe we'll leave it in. It's good entertainment, mm -hmm. entertainment value. That way, you'll never have a doubt in your mind that the five of us here are the sober ones. <laughs> I think this place is great, man. It's like the Redneck Riviera. You've got trailers that clearly somebody put together with spare parts, and then you have others that are probably worth more than the home that I live in. They're all just piled in here together. Um, and, and obviously, hunting is the the big goal and. When you drive around Three Lakes, you can understand the appeal. It's beautiful. I definitely want to come back down here in the daytime. Yeah, <clears throat> say, listen, coming in that front gate, that first camp they got set up, they had like a full kitchen underneath the tarpoleum with I'd... like tarps down the side. And I was like, dude, these guys are out here every weekend. <laughs> yeah, you, you could definitely tell that was the case. But so, Brian. 
what is the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association? I know you touched on it a little bit uh, when you were talking about yourself and, and introducing yourself, um, but can you go a little deeper into that? Yeah, it's a, um, well, I'll try my best. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's an organization that is for really promoting dogs that can both hunt upland game and waterfowl. So, um, you know, not all, all bird dogs, I guess, would qualify as, as a as a versatile hunting dog like that, but uh, quite a few breeds do. And, um, of course, my dog, Vesla, um, Murphy, who's a Vesla, is one of them. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great organization. Like I said, I've, I've met a ton of amazing people, and uh, folks from that organization have really taught me how to hunt how to hunt quail and, and dove and snipe and other birds that we target out here. But, um, you know, you've got all different breeds and, uh, it's fun because we train together. You know, we're not sending our dogs off to trainers. You know, we train our own dogs. These are our house dogs. These are not, you know, kennel dogs. These are dogs that, you know, are on the couch at, at home with, with our wife and kids, but in the field, you know, they're, they're amazing hunting dogs. And, uh, you know, I think what makes that great is, these dogs have learned to work together with their handlers like myself and, and these other, you know, other folks that participate. But, um, yeah, it's fun. I mean, there's, uh, you know, training sessions, there's testing, um, and, and you're talking about upland game, you're doing duck retrieves, you're doing duck search, you're tracking dead game. And, uh, all those disciplines are taught and, uh, it's just fun. I mean, it's a fun experience for me. It's something it's a, for me to do with my dog that, you know, I never thought before I had him that I would ever be doing this. So, you know, and, it, and it's, we get so much joy out of watching these dogs work. And that's that's why I got into it. The first time I saw my dog go after a quail, I said, I have to let him do Like, I can't keep this dog from being able to do this. Like, this is what he was born to do. So it was almost like me seeing him get so excited for birds. I'm like, well, I have to. I got to get into this now. So that's what got me into it, and I'm, I'm glad I did. I mean, it's been a, it's been a fun ride, and uh, actually just got got my second bird dog. We have a German short-haired pointer, six-month-old at home. So uh, he's work start working on him soon, and, uh, you know, it's kind of become my uh, my new hobby. So it's fun. So it's not often that uh, the dog makes the hunter. Usually it's the other way around where the hunter, the hunter right. makes the dog. Right. You know, I'd say uh, most of the time, you know, people are buying a, find one of these these bird dogs for for a purpose right they know ahead of time and uh you know but i tell you with with the folks at nabbed i mean i've so many people are are first time bird dog owners and first time hunters and I, i think there's probably a few people like myself that maybe didn't plan on it but you know they get one of these dogs and they they kind of study them and they they understand like the lineage and and how they were bred and they were like you know this is something that i like to do and i it's brought a lot of new hunters I think into the game I mean we've uh, there's there's so many people that I that I communicate with and hunt with now that are part of NAVDA that they own their first bird dog and I think it's great you know I mean we're introducing more and more people to you know hunting public land and hunting itself and being out in the woods and you know it's uh it's definitely done a lot for me and I'm I'm very thankful and uh but uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm not alone. I think it's great, I, and organizations like NAVDA have done a great job of bringing you know new people into the 
you know, into hunting and being out and enjoying public land. So what kind of outdoors experience did you have prior to getting Murph, Murphy? Yeah, Murphy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, I, I, I think I hunted one time before I, I had Murphy and it was a, like a plantation quail hunt, you know? So, um, you know, I've been camping a few times, but you know, that's really it. Like I just didn't spend a lot of time, you know, talking about outdoors, you know, maybe playing golf and things like that, but not really like in nature, you know, I mean, right. occasional hike, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, you, you've experienced so much just kind of being out here in the woods and just the views and the peacefulness and, uh, you know, you just see so much that you just never see, you know, if you weren't out here. That's awesome. I, I mean, I'm glad to have you now as a hunter. Yeah, yeah. And well, you, you know, and, and so many people think of Florida as, you know, beaches and Disney, and, and you come out here, and it's like a lot of people don't know how, how beautiful it is just in the, middle of the, in the middle of Florida. And these wildlife management areas, I mean, even if you don't hunt, I mean, it's just, a, I think, a, a beautiful place just to come and visit, you know, and, and drive around and see nature. And that, that's that's one of the things I struggled with when I was in the military. People were like, oh, where are you from? So I'm from Florida. Oh, what part of Orlando? Right. I'm like, I'm, yeah. I'm 45 yeah. minutes from Orlando, right. man. Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, in, in the woods of Florida. That's something that is really missed by a lot of people is that Florida's got over 12 million acres of public land. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's not maybe the first or second largest state east of the Mississippi as far as public land. I it is the largest state east of the Mississippi for public land. It is. I wasn't sure if Maine. Maine's probably got to give it a run for its money because all does. that. Um, all and their water. public land is actually private land with public access. It's uh, it's an interesting uh, combination. They do a great job of managing it. But it's a resource that most people are completely unaware of. Um, and for a state of 21, 21 or 22 million people, we sell, give or take, about 190,000 hunting licenses a year. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. I would love there to be more hunters simply from the the numbers and, and what you're able to, how you're able to wag the dog, so to speak. On the other hand, I kind of like that, you know, 25% of our state does not hunt because this place would be overrun. So uh, for those of you that are listening to the podcast counter blessings we have a wonderful resource and i guess we don't have to worry about those that aren't too I mean, bad I, for them <laughs> i could i could get into a whole nother podcast episode of how i feel about who has to and who doesn't have to purchase a license in the state of florida and as far as that goes to how we pull Pittman robertson funding uh but like i said that's a whole nother, we'll, we'll just we'll save that one pistol shooters are our best friends and they yeah. are plinkers love them yeah <laughs> you know i Talking about public land, it was kind of crazy to, I think me and you talked about it some, Jim. I know me and William talked about it, but, like, we actually just discovered land that was public to duck hunting this year that's actually owned by the county. And you would never, yeah. That spot doesn't exist. Yeah. It's just county land. I can't tell you where it's at, but um, it was just crazy to think that, you know, you go to these spots and you're like, man, this would be great. And then come to find out you do a little bit of research and you're like oh wow okay <laughs> county actually allows you to hunt this it's uh like middle of town yeah it, but it is 
fairly restricted in the fact that, what is it, Wednesdays and Sundays are the only days you can yeah. hunt out there? Wednesday and Sunday. Yeah. And I actually got locked in one time. They locked the gate early. They said the gate closed at like <clears throat> 7.15, and I pulled out at 7 o'clock, and the gate was locked. Is that the piece of public land that we discussed before we went to Texas? It is, yeah, and they locked me inside. <laughs> yeah. On a that's about as much as I would say about that place. Yeah. Because it's only good. Yeah, that's beautiful. And we went out there uh, one day after a morning duck hunt, and it was we found plenty of spots. That's where some of our, definitely some of our wood duck boxes are going to go. But... Uh, it's that's it's just a beautiful area out there. Sad thing is, I can only assume if they lock the gate early that they do not open it early, as they say. <laughs> There's only one way to find out: make the county worker show up and do his job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a what is a NAVDA a NAVDA hunt test consist of? So <clears throah> generally, so there's three different types of tests. So there's a natural ability test, and that's for dogs that are under the age of 18 months. And so for that test, it's, you know, you'll do an upland hunt and they want to see the dog point. They want to see the dog work, um, you know, obedience, things like that. You'll do a water test. So for natural ability, again, you're just looking for the dog's natural ability to hunt. So you got to throw a bumper in the water in a pond. Dog's got to go retrieve it and just basically they want to see the dog swim they're like so these are you know versatile hunting dogs so they want to they want to know the dog's not afraid of water and it can swim then they'll do a um actually a pheasant track they'll actually have a live pheasant release the live pheasant let it run into the woods sorry a little far from the mic let it run into the woods and um and the dog and just needs to just show that it's tracking it and uh so that's the natural ability test. Then uh, there's called a like a utility preparatory test, but then really the next test is called a utility test. And so this would be, you know, what a, a finished dog would do. So in this test, um, you would do like a 30-minute upland hunt. So they're going to plant several quail. Um, they're going to plant several quail um, in a field, and then they're going to plant one pheasant. And in that test, in the upland hunt, and, so, and if I get long-winded, just let me know. But No, in, hey, you're fine. <laughs> in the upland hunt, they want to see the dog, um, of course, how they work. They want to see, um, you know, out in front of you, quartering, um, obedience, working with the handler, not too far away, but, you know, ranging out a little bit, checking certain spots like, you know, where quail would be, you know, palmetto patches, things like that. Of course, finding quail you know when they go on point how steady are they are they rock solid or are they creeping a little bit um, and then you're gonna they actually will have two gunners so when you find a quail you're gonna flush the quail and one of the, you have two gunners on either side of you that'll shoot the quail and they're looking for the steadiness of the dog so it's kind of a series through a process through we call it steady to flush when the bird flushes steady to shot course when when the shot's taken and then steady to fall when that bird falls and so they're looking at the making sure the dog stays steady through that whole process and then the handler would send the the dog for the retrieve and then they're looking for the retrieve that the dog you know handles the quail obviously without without ruining the meat 
right? A soft mouth, and they want they want the dog to bring the quail right to your hand. So not playing around with it. It's go get the bird, bring it right to you, bring it right to your hand. You can't drop it until the handler asks. The dog has to deliver the bird to hand. Deliver the bird to hand, yeah. So, uh, you know, once the upland portion's done, um, there's there's three more disciplines. So, um, there's not really a particular order, but in this case, I'll just I'll just say um, there's a duck retrieve. So, it, it first starts with you have to heal the dog um, through like a series of kind of a slalom course, right? So, um, you you have to heal them with either without a leash or with a leash with no pressure on the dog right so um you have to heal them through a course um take them to a dog to a blind right by the lake and then you stage them at the at the blind and then you have to walk away from the blind and they have to stay there they can't follow you and then you're going to actually shoot a um a blank behind you know behind a tree where they can't see you and then there's distraction shots around the lake and they're looking for the dog to stay steady, right, at the blind. They don't want the dog to take off. And so, you know, they're creating a lot of kind of pressure for the dog to, to essentially try to make them make them fail. But They want the dog to break. Right, almost. they want the dog, you know, that's, you know, they're looking for the steadiness. So um, then you, as the handler, you'll walk back to the blind. There'll be more distraction shots. You'll fire a shot, and then they'll launch a dead duck into the pond and you'll you'll fire a blank at it and then you'll send the dog and they'll have decoys out and they got to swim through the decoys and not get distracted by that find the bird retrieve it to hand so um then uh the next discipline is we'll do a duck drag so again they'll they'll, they'll drag a duck maybe i don't know a couple hundred yards into like pretty pretty thick woods um, and you'll start them, they'll leave a little feather pile and you'll just start them at that feather pile and the dog's got to, to track that, that scent, find the duck, retrieve it to hand. And then the last discipline is, uh, probably the toughest where most dogs end up failing. And, and, you know, we had a, it took us three times to, to master this one, but, um, it's called the duck search. So they actually put a, a live duck in a pond, a uh, rather large pond and they'll do it kind of downwind so the dog really can't get the scent what they're looking for is a dog's desire so they're you're gonna the handler will fire a blank into the air and send the dog without the dog seeing any game fall so the you've got to teach the dog to trust you that hey there's something out there even though you didn't see it there's something out there and the dog's got to search this whole pond for 10 minutes before coming back and once they reach 10 minutes and they, they thoroughly search the pond, then they get a passing score. So it's pretty tense. Uh, first couple times through that test, uh, my dog searched for maybe seven, eight minutes. And, you know, you got you to gotta think, you know, if a dog like, hey, I didn't see anything shot. You know, you're just telling me it's out here. I searched for a long time and came back. And uh, it's, uh, you know, so it's it's pretty it's pretty so, intense. So in that in that test, the dog doesn't actually have to find the dog. It just has they to don't have to. They okay. If they do, they have to they have to retrieve it to hand. Okay. And if they find it before ten minutes, you have to send them back to search again. To search again. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, we did really good. We we actually did that utility test three times. 
we pretty much aced everything except the duck search the first two times where we got, you know, the the scoring is like out of four and we got a three the first two times and just didn't search long enough. So yeah. it just takes a lot of practice, you know, a lot of there's different methods of training him in the yard and just having him find tennis balls in the yard that he, he doesn't know are there. And so they learn to trust the handler and that's that's the big thing I think what's so cool about <clears throat> NAVDA and, and how everyone trains their own dogs is it's really a partnership. You know, I mean, these dogs work for their owners and they build, you know, you build that trust with your dog. And, you know, when you send your dog for something and he's like, I didn't see anything and he still goes and he'll look for 10 minutes. Cause you told him something's out there. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, talking about, you know, the, the test and everything, what was either your or Murphy's biggest like hurdle to get over in training? Well, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing, and I tell everybody this, like when I try to help people start kind of get into it is, is a lot of it is you think you need to go out there and get the dog on birds right away. A lot of it is just stuff you could do at home. It's, it's obedience, it's discipline, it's getting that respect with the dog. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the the biggest thing is just building that rapport with your dog and that yeah. trust and that they know like, hey, when, you know, you, when I'm with you, that means good things are going to happen. Like, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to have fun right now. We're going to have fun, right? We're going we're gonna to find some birds. We're going to get to run around in the woods right, and have right. a good time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are very, and, you know, there's this, you got, a lot of people think you have to really like discipline your dog very harshly and, and you have to be tough on them, but you know, a lot of that can be counterproductive because they're not going to work for you. You know, if, if, uh, you know, if they think, Hey, when, when, when we go out together, like we're going to do fun stuff, we're going to find birds. We're going to, you know, then they, they get excited about it and they're going to, they're going to want to work for you. So that's the biggest thing I've learned with uh, a lot of the guys that, you know, that have kind of helped me along the way is, uh, is like, you know, you want, you want to be associated with fun. Like, hey, let's go find some, yeah. let's go find some stuff. I know, I know my three-month-old lab, we're working on a lot of obedience right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. She's and, smart, though. She's right, doing really good. Right. Not to what's go been, too much on that. What's been great about watching Brian, I wish I'd watched, I wish I had seen this before I had children. It is, and I don't mean to blaspheme any other dog owners because I'm allergic to them and can't own them, but. I'll watch Brian, and the dog will be rambunctious, and instead of yelling at it, at Murphy, he'll just say, heel. And he says it in that same tone that I just said, heel, lay down. And the dog obeys. Maybe not all the time, but, you know. I've, I don't know if I've ever heard you raise your voice to Murphy. <laughs> I mean, when, you, when, you, when your voice is loud, it's usually because the dog is in motion and at distance. But there's never a tone... Brian, I don't think I've ever heard you use a tone of frustration or anger with the dog in the field. And Murphy just obeys. It's, uh, again, I'm a layman, right? I, I don't own the dog. I just, I watch it and I've, I've had the fortune to hunt behind Murphy since he was a pup. And, and now, and just watching, I see tremendous growth. Last time we were out, I noticed that he has learned that the quail in a palmetto field will tend to be found more often in areas that have heavier, if there's a bush out there in the field and you watch him, he'll go spend more time. He'll run from bush to bush to bush. 
and spend more time searching around those. And I don't know if that's something that they teach in training or if that's just something that he's intuitively learned. But it's no question, it's no doubt that Murphy has picked up and knows what's more likely to hold birds than others. So to watch that, watch that interaction between you and the dog, um, it is one of the things that when people ask me if there was a favorite thing that I, if I could only hunt one species, it's a really difficult choice for me probably between turkeys and quail. And unlike most people, if I had to pick one, and if I had access to Murphy, it would be quail. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned like kind of him hunting and looking at strategic areas, and, and that kind of made me think, you know, as much as we're talking about training the dogs, I mean, quite frankly, most of it is natural ability, you know, and that's that's what's so cool about it, and that's why I got into it. I mean, that's what these dogs were bred to do. That's what they love to do, and, uh, you know, it gives me so much joy to see them do it, you know. I mean, sometimes I probably the trainers get a little too much credit because really, I mean, these dogs just have people's, I think, just underestimate, like, how much these dogs are capable of. And, yeah, it takes training. You know, it, it, it definitely takes some obedience and things like that. But to watch them do what they're naturally bred to do is, uh, is, is really cool. Not to bounce around too much, but as far I know you said in the NAV, the test that dogs have to point, how do flushing dogs, how do they want, what do they want to see out of a flushing dog? Because a flushing so, dog's not going to point. Right, so... NAVDA, the, the, like, there's a certain criteria for, for a dog to be able to enter NAVDA. So it's, it's only certain breeds that are, are categorized as versatile hunting dogs that point and find game. So um, it's kind of limited to a certain number of breeds, like some, some breeds you're probably familiar with. Obviously, I have a Vizsla. German Shorehair Pointer is a very popular um, breed a lot of people are familiar with. Um, there is a a poodle pointer there's german wire hair pointer there's uh, a, um, a wired hair pointing griffon so there's there's all types of breeds but not not any breed can can participate in NAPTA. So, so so like a lab or a boykin maybe not right so much okay. correct correct yeah so um there are like akc events for um and and i participate in akc events too so there's an akc um like pointing dog um, hunt test. Like a field trial? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, there's field trials as well, and there's just the AKC hunt test. Uh, field trials is more like you're competing against other dogs. Um, in a hunt test, you're competing against a standard, right? So okay. you have judges. You have and meet the standard right. in a hunt test. And uh, out of a one to, you know, there's like a one to ten, and they're, they're judging, you know, pointing, trainability, obedience, retrieving, a lot of the same things in the, the upland tests for NAVDA. Um, and so that's just pointing dogs, right? And then, But there's also AKC hunt tests for retrievers. So like your labs and your golden retrievers, yeah. and they'll They're they gonna just do retrieving. Retrieve, that's it. Line yeah. retrieves, uh, yep. steadiness, things like that. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of the same stuff. I mean, it's a little bit more technical probably than like the the duck retrieves and that NAVDA does. Yeah. Um, you know, I know with... And I've got friends that do, you know, retrieve, have retrievers and do the hunt test uh, for AKC. And it's it's a little bit more technical, you know, where you're sending them signals and things like that. And NAVDA, it's really like... The dog has to sit on a whistle. Seabird, go get bird. Cast, things yeah, like that. Yeah, right. 
So I know like a, a, a big thing with um, duck dogs is, is being able to call that dog off a bird when, when there's a gator in the water so you can get that dog back to the boat. If that becomes an issue, and, and here in Florida it really is an issue, no matter where you're at, you're going to come across those gators. So what are some of the safety things you guys are, are training into your upland dogs? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the great things that, again, NAVDA does is they'll have usually once, maybe twice a year, um, they'll host what's called a snake avoidance clinic. And uh, it's, pre- it's pretty interesting, but they'll have uh, – there you go. <laughs> that was better. Brought to you that Coca-Cola. They'll <laughs> <laughs> um, so have maybe a vet or uh, – I actually had a guy. I'm, t- I'm trying to remember his name. I think he was uh, – it was on some some show, and it'll come to me later. But um, he he owns like rattlesnakes, um, water moccasins, and what they'll do is they'll they'll bring these snakes and they'll put them in a cage, and they'll kind of plant them in a field, and you'll bring your dog up, and what the it's it's kind of sounds terrible, but when you think about it, it's really to hopefully potentially save their life. Is you'll put an e collar on them and you'll crank it at pretty high right so they know it's very bad and if the dog comes up to say a rattlesnake and he kind of gets a scent as soon as you notice the dog get the scent you'll shock him and like really shock him bad like so they know like you know that that is bad you want to stay away from it and so uh i've taken i've taken my dog through it a few times and really it only for a lot of dogs it only takes once right you do You know, you do it a year later, and they know that scent, and and that's another thing about these dogs. I mean, obviously they're, you know, that's why we we hunt with them with their noses. I mean, they they get the scent of this the snake, and they recognize it immediately. And uh, I'll tell you, earlier this season, I mean, it it potentially saved my dog's life. I mean, I I've hunted out here quite a bit and hadn't come across a rattlesnake in in five years uh, that I've been out here. But earlier this season, we were out hunting and right at the end of the hunt we're, we're just walking back to the car we're almost actually back to the car and my dog goes up to this kind of shrub area and just jumps back and as soon as he jumped back we heard a rattle and so um you know it it showed me right there like that worked like he smelled that snake and he jumped back and uh so that was you know that was uh obviously made me a little nervous you know I had my heart racing but it, it also made me very happy that again that you know this club does does events like that that you know we can you know we can introduce our dogs to these and keep them safe you know so they they recognize that smell and they're going to stay away from it does does navda require you to be a member to go to like some of these training events no, or can a, you uh, you know for the training up, events um generally it's it's just dogs that like breeds that would that would you know fit within the NAVDA criteria now for the snake avoidance clinic I'll tell you any any dog is welcome to that and so that's pretty cool that anybody can bring their dog and I have seen other breeds that aren't generally you know going to test in the NAVDA test but they'll still come out to training um okay so you can bring labs and stuff to do some yeah I mean work and things yeah I mean I haven't seen it often but um you know occasionally occasionally I mean I think just generally like you know your your labs and your retrieving dogs i mean they're i know there's like retrieving clubs and things like that that they join but i have occasionally seen 
you know, someone bring out maybe a, I actually saw, I think a Springer Spaniel out one time and, you know, that's not a really like a, a pointing dog, but you know, they were out there just doing some water work. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I actually wanted a Springer before I got a, a Boykin and then just ended up buying the Boykin cause I, I got a fair price on it. And I was like, I'd, I'll never own anything other than a boy. <laughs> yeah. They're cool uh, dogs, man. Another question you kind of led me into, um, as far as especially training, um, what is your opinion on the e-collars? I, I think it's a great training tool. I mean, um, e-collars get a kind of a bad rap because people don't know how to use them. That, that's why I asked the question. You know, a lot I of mean, people, like our butt, uh, we got our – He's not here tonight, but Matt, he just, he won't put a e-collar on his dog. He said never again. Yeah, I mean, and you just have to know how to use it. I mean, it's not there to hurt the dog. It's there just to get their attention. That's it, all it yeah. is. It's just to apply pressure when the dog's That's off it. lead. That's <laughs> it. You know, and, and visas are known as being pretty soft, and, and, and I'm kind of telling myself the very first time I used an e-collar, I screwed up. I, I, you know, maybe I didn't have it on properly, and I'm, I'm pressing the button. It's not working. I turn it up, press the button, and I, I guess I got it too high, and uh, my dog jumped about three feet in the air and wouldn't come back to me, and so I didn't put it on him for like three more months, you know, and just kind of broke it in, and, and I realized you got to just start really low, and it's just enough, just enough to get their attention. That's it. You know, you never should hurt a dog with a knee collar. It's just really to kind of, just for them to recognize hey that that feeling is associated with a command that's it okay yeah. um i have i have the dogtra 1900s for my dog okay. and it has vibrate and i was thinking about trying to train her to sit on the vibrate yeah absolutely yeah i mean you could that's the cool thing i mean you could do really use any anything you want right so like i use like there's a beep just a little a, a tone that you can barely hear but uh i train my dog when i hit the the beat to just come right to me yeah. so i did it in the house i started in the house he would hear i would just have him on like right by me but i would i would beep and give him a treat beep give him a treat then he'd be a little in another room one you know beep he'd come to me give him a treat so he knows every time he hears that beep comes running right to me yeah. so i could be in the field you know you know I don't have to say anything. I could just on my on my remote with the e collar beep and he'll come right to me. Now, have you heard of the collars that beep when the dog goes on point, or does Murphy not range that far? Well, so I've got one of those. Um, I end up getting a beeper collar, like it's an accessory to the the collar I already had. I kind of screwed up because I trained him to come to me <laughs> come on, on beep. beep. <laughs> but like, I mean, it's a totally different beep, but it kind of just it freaks him out a little bit so he's I, like oh wait what do i do but right. i don't feel point <laughs> yeah because i don't use a gps collar i i use you know but he he doesn't range too far but there are there are times where it's hard to see lose him in a palmetto flat <laughs> yeah you can't yeah i mean and he blends right in and uh if he goes on point and you call him he's not going to come he's going to stay on point and like you can't find him so i've tried to introduce a, a beep a beeper call i'm still working on that mine actually uh you can actually either do a beep or when they go on point, a hawk scream, which is supposed to keep the quail, like, from flushing, okay. supposedly. I don't know if that really works or not. But <laughs> I tried the hawk scream, but that, that uh, actually just uh, a couple weeks ago, but kind of same thing. He went on point, and then the hawk scream went off, and he, he kind of moved. I'm like, well, I don't really want him moving when he's on point. So yeah. 
kind of back to square one. I, I don't know if I have to end up just going <laughs> to the GPS uh, system or not, but I was hoping to just, you know, use a beeper, but we'll see. You know, when, I'm, <clears throat> when I followed Murphy, the dog really doesn't range that far, and any time that I can't see the dog and it's not moving, I get real excited because I just assume Murphy's on point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I, re, I, I like the tone. My dog as well is toned to retrieve or heal on, on a tone. And it's nice sometimes for me because if, like, if we're out in the woods like we're squirrel hunting and I didn't have sight on her, I can tone her. And then next thing I know, she's right there. Yeah. I'm just not, I'm not having to, like, yell for her. Or you right. just give her a quick tone and she's right back to you. Yeah. So, uh. I'm still working on it. You know, he's six years old, but uh, I'm still trying to, you know, figure out things that work for us and new things, you know, training methods. So, uh, like I said, this is my first bird dog. So, um, you know, it's gone pretty well for me with this dog. I mean, thankfully for him, I think he's probably made me look good, made me look <laughs> like I know what I'm doing. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning myself, but... uh yeah, that's one thing I, I need to figure out because there are times where I'm like, you know, I just lose sight of him. Like, I don't know where he is. And it <laughs> takes me forever to find him, and there he is on point. I'm like, okay. But, uh, <laughs> there are elements of our society that I'm sure that their emotional intentions are good, but they would prefer that no dog be used for hunting of any purpose. And what's been one of my greatest pleasures in watching you and Murphy and in it comes through in this podcast is how much you care about the dog, how reciprocal that relationship is between you and the dog. Um, cause when you, when you let, there's Murph, when you, let, when you, when you tell Murphy to he, when you tell Murphy to hunt him up, he's off like a shot. He's so obedient and he's looking at you. He knows what's coming and when you let him off the leash, so to speak, even though he's not actually tethered to a leash, watching that dog take off in unadulterated joy to chase those birds. But then the whole time we're out there, I've also noticed that your number one concern at all times following gun safety is, where's my dog? How's he doing? Where's my dog? How's he doing? And uh, anybody that would portray dog owners and working dog owners um, as a, I don't even have the right word to use for it, but a, a parasitic relationship. If they came out and watched you and Murphy walk together, I don't see how they could possibly leave and still have that opinion. It's, it's a, a beautiful thing to watch. It's a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, I said it earlier. It's one of the reasons that coil hunting is, uh, although I don't do it as often, if I had to choose one thing and I had access to Murphy, it would be coil hunting. Yeah, it's, you know, it's pretty special. You know, I think about that often as, as uh, you know, kind of the, the relationship I have with my dog. Like I never, <laughs> never thought I have a relationship with my a dog like I do Murphy. You know, it's just, uh, it's crazy, you know, that we... You know, obviously we've we've worked hard. We've we've done a lot of training together, but you know, to go out in the woods and to be able to work together and find quail and shoot quail and retrieve quail and bring quail home is like you know, it's a tiny little bird, right? It ain't gonna feed a whole lot of people, but 
you know, just to have that experience, you know, together is just like, it's, it's just, a, it's a cool feeling. I don't know about like deer dogs. They haven't done much of that, but like, especially bird dogs in general, I've noticed that like that dog literally its life goal is to please its owner. Yeah. Yeah. And it's evident too. It's evident. It's a, it's a reciprocal relationship. It's fantastic. So I'll say this, having spent the better part of two deer seasons hunting alongside of a very large club in Southeast Georgia, guys that ran deer dogs for people who think that people who hunt with dogs don't treat their dogs. Well, I've never seen a closer bond in any type of hunting dog between the owner and the dogs. Those dogs are like children to those people. I was going to say, if you want to see that bond, just watch what happens to the owner when they lose a dog. Oh, absolutely. It's almost like they lost a child. Absolutely. Well, I've got a, a buddy in my neighborhood. He always says that Murphy hit the dog lottery. You know, we've got a wife and, and three girls at home, and this dog gets so much loving, like you wouldn't <laughs> believe. But yet he gets to come out here and do what he loves most you know, and, and chase birds. So, I mean, these dogs have it pretty dang good. You know, I talk about all these, these, uh, the NAVDA, like all those dogs are house dogs, you know, they're not dogs that live outside in a kennel. These are all dogs that are, are at home. They're love pets, like every other, you know, dog, probably more love than most dogs, frankly. And yet they get to come out and, uh, and really do what, they were bred to do what they love to do and it brings them a lot of joy like there's nothing there's nothing more that these dogs want to do than be out here and hunt birds if you listen real close you can hear uh murphy trying to say his piece yeah. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds like murphy's ready to go get on some quail oh, yeah. <laughs> so kinda, oh go ahead so what is your favorite part of the hunt well you know obviously i mean i do it i do it with for the dog like i don't really i don't hunt unless i can hunt with my dog you know like jim jim's invited me i am so <laughs> trying to change that he has tried to invite me to some hunts and i'm like uh, i mean unless i can bring murphy like that's kind of why i do it you know so i mean i love i love watching him work and do his thing but you know when and, and look i mean quail hunting in florida like it's tough there ain't a whole lot of quail around Florida, you know, but, you know, we get into them every once in a while. And, you know, when we go through that process and you see the dog go on point and your heart starts racing and you kind of creep up on them and all, and you experience a quail flush. And if you haven't experienced a wild covey of quail flush in front of you, like it's hard to explain, right? I mean, it's, it's just a, a very cool experience, an amazing experience. And then, to shoot a bird and to watch your dog go and retrieve it and bring it back to you. I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to explain. Um, probably the, probably the most rewarding thing I would say though, is when you shoot a bird and it goes into the thickest stuff you can imagine that you would never in a million years find that bird without a dog. And even with the dog, you're like, that's probably impossible. And the dog goes in there and comes out with a bird in his mouth and brings it right to you. Like that's probably the best feeling. Oh, so, it is, and it's like I've watched you react too. It's almost like your dog just won the Super Bowl. <laughs> so, so tell us about <clears throat> either Murphy's Murphy's first hunt. 
Oh, man. Or, I say first hunt, but I mean, like, you know, his first retrieve, you know, yeah. his first flush, things like that. Well, Bill Bill Snyder, who was president of NAVDA um, when I first started, he introduced me to it. He He took me out, him and his son, Bill and Billy Snyder. And they took me out and uh, kind of introduced me to it. And, uh, you know, he's pretty young at the time, but I got to see some other dogs really, you know, work and how good they were. And um, Bill hunts was, with short hairs, right? Yeah, he had short hairs at the time. He has poodle pointers now. Um, so I'm trying to – the first – actually, the first time I actually shot a bird over Murphy – was with you. You were there, Jim. I remember that time. We were we were hunting with Bill, and that's yeah, when we were hunting with well, Bill. So it was almost like a duck hunt because we were in the water and yeah. There, these quail were right up near a, a big cypress strand, so it was pretty wet, and uh, that was pretty rewarding, you know, to put all all that work in into it, and you know, again, me being new to hunting, to like, and I envisioned that, like, you know, to to go out with my dog and be able to shoot over my dog and shoot quail and like. That was a pretty special moment. I can imagine. Yeah. I still have pictures. I was looking at pictures on my cell phone just the other week. And I, I actually have pictures of that hunt that we were out with Bill Snyder. And you got that quail and I got that quail. And I've got a picture on my cell phone of you and I um, side by side, you know, grinning Grinning like we just won the lottery. Yeah, because never, we knocked and that and quail in Florida is a pretty good prize. I yeah. Think. Oh, they are, man. If you're looking for a payload, uh, Florida quail hunting, wild birds is not the sport for you. But if you're looking for a challenge, it's incredibly rewarding. That for what do you think? Three ounces of meat. If uh, that you're you're going to cover a lot of ground, man. But when you knock them down, it is. Again, it's another one of those reasons why if I could only hunt one thing, I'd hunt quail. I'd have to eat a lot more domestic produce than I do, but um, it's just uh, the whole the whole recipe is and it doesn't get old. so rewarding. It just doesn't get old, you know. It's like I was out here two weeks ago, and we got into a covey, and the first bird went down. And, I mean, I, I was high-fiving my buddy, and we were, like, again, grinning ear to ear. It's just like to come out here and find these birds and get into them, it's you know, we should probably put a prop in for quail forever. If we want, if we want more quail habitat in Florida, that's probably an organization that more, more hunters should support. Admittedly, I'm I'm a member because I, I enjoy quail hunting so much, and I but I'm not real active because so much of my time goes to BHA. But it is a it is something that I think would really be an effective R3 tool if we could get more people behind dogs. And if we, we'd probably get more people behind dogs if we had more quail habitat. It's exciting to watch a dog work, even if you don't kill anything. Absolutely. It, it, it's just a whole another aspect to the hunt that... Unfortunately, you... I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> it's been that season. I'm not always the best shot, but no, no, I hear you. Well, it's one thing to have a chance to kill something, right? <laughs> versus not seeing anything well, at all. You mentioned like going back. I my first hunt with Murphy. Um, I mentioned the first bird I shot over Murphy. I didn't mention the first several I missed over Murphy. <laughs> but uh, you know, 
that's part of the game too, I guess. Got to spend some time at the skeet field if you want to knock down birds. It's when it all comes together, you do your part, and the dog does his so, part, yeah. and that's when it all came together. That was a great moment. <laughs> but like the first time Murphy went on point, and I walked behind him, and I flush a bird, and it was just right in front of me, and I miss it. That was <laughs> the worst feeling. The worst feeling. Does, but, uh, does that? Does and that then, make you want to be a better shot for Murphy? So oh, Murphy yeah. gets the I mean, chance you to retrieve him, like, and you do could that. Just feel him looking at me. the disappointment. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> you feel him. You like, see him. Yeah, We've both like, done that. Where I've been out with you, where he's flushed a covey of eight, nine birds. We go blam, 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 and nothing falls out of the sky. And Murphy turns around and gives you the look like. <laughs> if you can talk, that's human exactly what better. it's saying. Yeah. But no, marksmanship is important, too. Jordan and I went to Texas, and we um, we had some great success in sandhill cranes. But I got to tell you what, that between the handful of fellows that were out there, I would say for every sandhill crane that went down and every goose that went down, there's probably about six outbound shots. Man. <laughs> Those brothers next year, if we we go out there again, or if we go on that pheasant hunt in January, we're going to have a range day before we go. Yeah. You know, you talk about shooting clay pigeons and the range day and all that stuff, but and I've shot plenty of clay pigeons, but I've never went, oh shit, a clay pigeon, you know. <laughs> so yeah. just the, like, the level of excitement you yeah, get from shooting you. at uh, and, a live animal versus clay pigeons is is that's something you can't factor into it. You know? No, but you you do get your leads down, and practice makes perfect. And if you're going to knock down birds, it's all about knowing not to stop your swing, getting your leads down, and you know, we're not going to go out there and cage up, you know, a couple thousand pigeons and just yeah, lay waste yeah. to them. So it's it's going to be clays, and I'd rather have it that too. I mean, I got no problem with anybody knocking something down; they're going to eat. But I don't want. Uh, I'd never. I would never foster uh, any kind of environment where people are just killing things to kill them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think probably not to kind of revisit Texas, but the craziest part to see a dog like work in Texas was. <laughs> We were getting ready, like, we had just sat up in the blind. It was, like, me and Jim and one other guy in the layouts, and the one lone goose, I mean, the guide wasn't even with us, one lone goose come in, and, like, Jim's like, I'm going to wax it. (laughs) So, Three shots. Take it to the plug. No, Jim, Jim, like. (laughs) I got it on the second shot. Jim, like, Jim wings this goose, and I'm talking this goose flies, dude, five, six hundred yards, like, on the complete other side of the field. Yeah, the guy didn't even, he thought it was somebody in another field that shot it. He yeah. had no idea where his dog <laughs> was going. About, this dog, it looked, I mean, it had to look like that dog ran a quarter mile <laughs> to get that bird. But the dog didn't stop. The dog literally went like a quarter mile, got the goose, and brought it back. That's a good dog. It was pretty cool. <laughs> they, yeah, it's put, a shame. Uh, they put goggles on those dogs out for the sandhill cranes, right? Yeah. They do, and we didn't see that. We didn't see it this year, but in the past when I've been out there hunting, um, I'm going to give props to some folks at Crooked Wing Outfitters out in Texas. There's a fellow out there named um, Will, and uh, Will has a dog. Um, Will is also absolutely lethal on birds. He's fantastic. That's a good, strong name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Will Riddle. Um, But his dog, uh, which I think is a golden um it's amazing when you've got these birds these that are down in the in the decoys and the dog takes off and these geese or cranes are standing out there 
and the dog will hit those birds at full tilt and does not pull up. It's like Ronnie Lott going through somebody, man. For some of your younger listeners, Ronnie Lott used to be a San Francisco 49er, and he was a he was horrendous defensive back. But um, it's amazing that these dogs, but they're thrilled to do it, right? I don't want to. I don't want to get into the whole blood sport of it. Um, but these dogs would. There's nothing else they'd rather do. And they've all been trained to do different things, whether it's retrieve quail or tackle sandhill cranes or retrieve geese or retrieve ducks or chase pigs or chase deer. But when they're in that moment, they're not being forced to do it. It's hard to call them off. So we've got five hunters gathered around a table. And when you gather this many hunters, fishermen, outdoorsmen in particular... There's always some stories. So you're never gonna talk to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gonna be a not not a your wife, but coming up here in the next few weeks, there's gonna be a a wives tell all podcast. No, actually, I would I would love it if you'd invite my wife. I think she'd be fantastic, and I it, really don't have that much dirt, but uh, I'd be interested in seeing what she's been paying attention to that I've been oblivious about. You know, I'm kind of interested to it as well, uh, and now I have to. I told my wife, I said, if you're going to do this, I said, you have to type up the outline. She's going to type up the outline. I'm going to show her how to run the equipment, and I'm just going to step off the mic. I'll send them to my house. We'll, we'll wind them up before they do it, and that'll mm. really be good. <laughs> that'll really be good. <laughs> We're going to, uh, it's going to be my wife, uh, I know for sure. And I, I have uh, my buddy AJ, who I've hunted, I hunted deer with in Georgia for a season, and then he, uh, was relocated to Fort Campbell, and he went two years without killing a deer. And how you can go a year without killing a deer on Fort Campbell, I do not understand. So his wife is about fed up with the uh, quote-unquote hunting aspect of hunting and is ready for him to bring some meat home. Vegetarian. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> so it, that that's going to be a good episode in and of itself just to hear uh, – the amount of crap they have to talk about us, but uh, I, I've been thinking about getting some BHA T-shirts that say "vegetarian," and the only time they are to be worn is when you go out and you do something incredibly stupid that costs you your meals. So <laughs> what you're saying is they should have an increasingly shorter shirt tail as the years go on. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah, we there's not a hunter out there that hasn't deserved to wear that shirt a couple oh, of times. God. I have the past two seasons in a row. Um. But so, Brian, what do you what do you got for your what what's your favorite story? Well, I guess my favorite story. I don't know if it's my favorite, but uh, my most interesting story. Like, so, because of my bird dog, I seem to get invited to go on uh, the occasional duck hunt. Not not because I they want to invite me, but because they, they, they want, want Murphy my dog. to show They want Murphy, right? Right. So like they were like, hey, can you come hunt and uh, make sure you bring Murphy? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, went, went on a duck hunt with a buddy and, um, we went out Puzzle Lake in, uh, I guess Seminole County. So we, uh, get on my buddy's John boat and he invited another buddy. So there's three of us on his John boat and, uh, we're not small guys, none of us. And oh, this is Mike? We got, um, uh, yeah, yep, yep. So, uh, Mike Ortigo. Matt Balenson, I'll go ahead and call him out. 
Oh, by the way, Sigma Kai's, I'm going to give an in-hook shout yeah. out to any Sigma Kai's that might hear this pro- this uh, podcast. So uh, get on the boat, and uh, it's riding pretty low, riding pretty low with those big guys on it. And we got Murphy on there, and uh, we don't get very far, and we start taking on water. And it, if you've ever been on a boat that takes on water, like, you can't stop it. Once water starts coming in, like, like it, you're done. And... Uh, like within seconds, this thing starts sinking right in this little in this channel, and uh, like we're you know we're all overboard. The boat's upside down. All of our gear, our guns, everything is in the water. I'm wearing waders. I've heard horror stories of like you know you wear waders, they fill up with water, you sink to the bottom. Thankfully, my feet hit, so I could walk. <laughs> Uh, barely, I'm a rather tall guy and, uh, I start freaking out about my dog. I'm like, where's Murphy? Where's he? I thought he was trapped under the boat. And meanwhile, he's like on the shore, like looking for birds or something. I don't look know. At like, you, he didn't care. <laughs> yeah. He is like, look at you dumbasses. Uh, um, and so, uh, yeah, we get all of our stuff and organize it and get it back to the, you know, get it over kind of to somewhat dry land and. Anyway, that was uh, quite an quite an adventure. Now I didn't have a uh, a floating gun case for my gun. Neither did my buddy of mine. They just sank to the bottom. So we go out like three days later with this like huge treble hook and uh, pull one of the guns up from the bottom of the lake. And then like three days later after that, Ortigo goes back and finds another one, and we actually are able to take them to a gun shop, get them cleaned up. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, quite, quite an introduction to duck hunting for me. So Niels, I haven't been, I haven't been duck hunting a whole lot lately. I've not heard, some reason. I've not heard know. you talk about your great <laughs> yeah. duck hunting trips. I seem to just come out here and try to find quail. So I too have sunk a John boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seems like it's a rite of passage, I think for, uh, duck hunters maybe well we weren't duck hunting we had a 12 foot john boat uh with three dudes in it and uh you have to have three guys not small not small dudes no that's pretty small eric was pretty small but (laughs) me and ian yeah yeah me and ian were not uh not by any means small guys at the time and we were out bow fishing and we were just we it was a 12 foot john boat with a five horse air-cooled engine on the back, and a trolling motor. And Which one was faster? The trolling motor, <laughs> by far. Uh, but I don't know whether we hit a, a rogue wave or what, but water came over the front of the boat. And we were just doing fine and dandy with me and Ian in the back and Eric sitting in the front. But when water touched his butt, he freaked out, ran to the back of the boat, and so came all the water with all the other weight that was in the boat, and that was it. And under she went. And I mean, it was in a split second. Uh, luckily, I had built built a wooden platform on the front of the boat, which kept the front of the boat out of the water. So we lost uh, the gas can, the trolling motor, and the battery. Everything else was salvageable. We actually halfway rebuilt that five horse motor and i sold it no and yeah this, it, it stayed at the house for a long time i ended up giving it to a junk guy oh did you yeah oh, okay i thought we sold that motor no we did sell the, the john boat though 
I sold. I bought the. We got the John boat for fifteen bucks at yard sale, and I sold it for fifty. <laughs> so that go. was that was a that's a win. Yeah, profit. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that uh, I've got a short story and a longer story that both enjoy, that start with the twelve foot John boat and a five horse five horse outboard air cooled outboard, where I took it out in St. Joe Bay. Which is not small water. No. <laughs> and storms known to come up rather quick. And I got caught out there one time and uh, started taking water over the bow. And I remembered some somebody that I can't even tell you who it was told me that if you're as long as you got forward momentum, you can pull your drain plug and the drain plug will actually suck water out of the boat. And I can attest that that is indeed true. Because I got stuck out in St. Joe Bay with a little bit of wind, and when you've got a five-horse motor and a little bit of wind, your forward progress is is usually negative. But uh, the other, as far as a great story goes, um, I've got a good friend who now lives in Louisiana. His name is Jay Platt, and he and I were up in the Panhandle flounder gigging, and coming back from flounder gigging at about two o'clock in the morning, and. Uh, coming down some of the old country roads and there's a bunch of pigs standing out on the side of the road. So we ran back and picked up uh, our archery equipment that we, you know, nobody goes to panhandle without archery equipment. If they do, they're just not well prepared. And there was no pigs. But the next night we went out flounder gigging again, unsuccessful. But this time we brought the uh, the gear. So uh, much like our, our wonderful host who's currently driving a minivan, at the time Jay drove a minivan, so we uh, we creep up on these pigs. We figured out that if you stop in front of the pigs and run away, so we, we are idling up to these pigs with me in the back of the minivan with the dome light on and uh, a headlamp. And with the one headlamp, you can either see the pigs or you can see your archery sights. So we got to, you can picture this. We're creeping up. The door's open. The minivan's going bing, 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 <laughs> bing. And we're just idling up these pigs, and there there must have been 30 of them. And one of them was the biggest pig I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not exaggerating. That was a 300-pound pig. And um, Jay has a spotlight pointing out the passenger side door to illuminate the pig, so that way I can use the headlight headlamp that I've got on my bow to see the sights. Now I rear back, and there's a pig just off the side, and I let fly. Twang! Thwack! And that pig that I hit came and charged the van. And I was sitting there with my, my feet dragging out the side of it. And that, you know, and so with all these pigs going forward, they live in different directions, which as you can imagine is just, it's just mayhem, right? It's just mayhem and discontent. And that pig smashes into the side of the minivan. Meanwhile, of course, I'm, I'm bailing back because I think it's going to come into the minivan. And, uh, um, but that, that, that night where we're out there and just enjoying that mayhem, um, was just, it, for whatever reason, as far as a silly story, um, and again, it's pigs, it's not white-tailed deer. I don't want anybody calling in and saying, what do you mean you shot pigs out of a minivan? It's pigs. Relax. Um, it's just one of those things that I always recall as being one of the most, um, humorous i probably haven't done it justice but if you were there you'd all be laughing at us because yes we were idiots but man it was a funny it was a funny set of idiot circumstances so i'll tell you a funny pig story uh 
my dad at the time was hunting in uh, where was where was that lease you guys had over near Tony's property? What what would you call that? Cuthbert area yeah. of Georgia, great part of Georgia. And I had traveled west uh, from the Savannah area to hunt over there. And my dad said, go hunt this stand. There's plenty of pigs over there. I said, okay, well, if I'm going to go hunt where there's plenty of pigs, I'm going to take my M14, which for those of you who don't know what that is, that is a semi-automatic 308 Vietnam-era rifle. And I was sitting there, and I could hear a sounder coming my direction. And I looked down the trail, and I see a big sow and about 15 piglets. And I say piglets, they were probably 20, 30 pounds apiece. And the road they were traveling on would have put them at about 20 yards in front of me. I said, okay. So I flipped the safety off, and I said, I'm going to let them come. And right before she got to my tree stand, she button-hooked to the right and came in to about eight steps off the ladder. So when they got to the base of the ladder, I stood up, put one between her eyes, and when I did that, the piglets scattered like crackheads when the DEA kicks in the door. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, sing me the song of your people. Kapow, 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 kapow. <laughs> and I got two more on the run. <laughs> and when I finally uh, finished that, uh, about 10 rounds of that 20-round magazine, I get, a, I get a text from my dad's buddy. He says, did you get one? I said, I got three. <laughs> so that that was quite the morning as far as that goes. You know, you mentioned old um, war era rifles, and I saw something on Facebook, so it must be true, but I understand that somebody's making, um, not infield, oh my gosh, um, hello, what's the big World War II? Uh, the M1 Garand? Exactly. I understand that somebody's making an M1 Garand that chambers 458 Magnum. Now, if you've ever Jeez. shot an M1 Grand, just shoots 30 caliber rounds, you know you just shot a rifle. And I'm like, who in the world would need, you know, it's like if you were actually drawing down on an enemy combatant, it's like it doesn't matter what they're hiding behind. It's going to go through their cover, them, the three guys behind them. But meanwhile, <laughs> yeah. you're only going to get to shoot once because you're out. you got to go. <laughs> your shoulder's you broken. You broke your shoulder. Exactly. So I'll, I'll give you a little insight on that. That is a thing. The the uh, M1 Grand chambered in 458 Winchester. Is it 458 Win? Okay. But that gunsmith that was doing that died about five years ago. So Concussion. <laughs> right. Uh, it's it's a pretty limited run, but I would love to have one of those. And a limb saver to boot, man. <laughs> so I kind of had one because we were talking about dogs, but pigs too. But so I got two, but. It was that same Cuthbert lease, and I walk into the stand, and it, you know it's still you. You got you know your deer hunting. You got to stand, you know three thirty four o'clock, and I hit the base of the ladder, and I'm I think to myself, I don't know why, but I think to myself, I'd be kind of weird to shoot something off the ladder, right? So I'm climbing up, and I look up, and there's a sow, like forty yards from me, standing in the road, and I'm like, it's okay, dream come true. <laughs> And I let go of the ladder with one hand and wrap one arm around the ladder and just rest. I mean, I only have one hand at this point because I'm mid-ladder. 
and I rest the gun over my other like elbow and just waxed her right off the ladder. And then ended up shooting another pig that afternoon, but I was like, it was the craziest thing to me because I just, something before I started climbing ladders, like it'd be crazy to shoot a pig off the ladder and then ended up just waxing one off the ladder. But Coil hunting has left the building. It's all oh, about absolutely. pigs now. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> I got one more. I got when one it, more uh, coil story. When Please it come- do. Cla- class to join yeah. up again, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Let Briar give something unrelated oh, yeah. to quail hunting, and then you can class us back up go. to the, the one, gentleman's sport. My one via birds, but so it was. It was the first time I'd ever taken Bell on a. Briar was actually. Oh yeah, person. I remember this one. First time I'd ever taken Bell on a hunt. I, she wasn't even a year old. Don't have decoys. Thought, yeah, I just thought, you know what? Let me bring my dog because I want her to. I don't plan to actually run her because she was just to the age where I knew she wasn't like ready. She she was young, so she wasn't a great swimmer at that. I mean, she could swim, but she wasn't strong. And uh, so we get all set up, and we, we're throwing the last few decoys, and uh, something tells me I'm like, man, I don't I don't hear my dog. Like, where's my dog? And I said to my buddy Ty, I'm like, hey, you see my dog? He's like, nah. And so I turn the headlight on and she's like mid decoys <laughs> like in the Trying midst to figure of, out which yeah. one to pick in up the, in the midst of the decoy she had heard one hit the water and she was like this is my cue <laughs> right it's still pitch black outside and so she gets out and like nestles around a decoy and figures out it's a decoy and starts to come back well she gets tangled up and and between cattails and dang lily pads and crap she still had the leash on <laughs> yeah like she, she had, she had a harness had a lead, yeah. and leash on her at this time. Yeah, and uh, so she gets back within like, I would say seven foot of the boat, and it's like what it it's in the thirties. It wasn't was, that cold. It, it was, was, it was, it was about about as cold as it was that yesterday morning yeah. when I went swimming. It was quite cold, <laughs> and uh, at this point the leash hangs up and she just slowly starts to sink as she's coming back, and I'm like, oh god, this sucks. And I leave, I reach out to try and get her. I couldn't get her. And I ended up having to jump in, like full hunting attire, jump in and get the dog back in the boat. And I ended up hunting the rest of the hunt soaking wet. Yeah, but in that situation, you didn't have a choice, man. Your dog yeah. was in distress at yeah. that point in time. So your dog went in because it, it heard a duck come into the deeks. It was no, just no. pre-sunning. No, she was black. going after the it decoys. Was, we were still throwing decoys. Oh, so she heard the decoy at the water was like, yeah. I know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I got it, yeah. And she just went for it, and I was like, son of a gun. And I ended up hunting the rest of it. But somehow, my socks stayed dry, and that Your kept socks me... were not dry. You had, you had, like, took my oh, socks. Oh, that's right. Because I took I your socks. Because I had Crocs on, <laughs> yeah. and he took my socks. But I'm like, here's dry, my socks. Yeah. Having dry, dry socks kept me decently warm for the rest of the hunt. Hypothermia has an interesting way of changing how you think about things, <laughs> how you remember stuff. Um, so, a couple of stories now. Since I'll, I'll talk about me going swimming yesterday, <laughs> but uh, first one talking about the ladder, and this was in our lease over in in, uh, in East Georgia there around Savannah, when we were surrounded by the dog hunters, and it was one afternoon, and I was walking to the stand, and I'm like, I could hear the dogs coming. I was first, I was walking kind of slow, and I'm like, okay, I can hear the dogs coming. <laughs> I better hurry up. So I start picking up the pace and walking. And I get about halfway up the ladder, and I look over, and there's a deer standing in the middle of the field, and then it just takes off. I didn't even have a chance to get get on anything. It was like the only deer I'd seen all season 
the whole deer. And then I'd found this, my swimming story, I'd found this spot, <clears throat> and it's a little, it's, it's a little marsh area through the trees that goes back off the main lake. And I'm like, all right, the, the vegetation in there was so thick, I knew, like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get the boat back there. But me and my cousin, a uh, couple of weeks before, had hunted on the edge of it, and we'd shot a couple of birds, but I'm like, I want to get back to that hole where they're landing. And he'd sailed one off behind us, so I was kind of mad because I knew he wasn't going to find the duck. But we put forth effort to find it anyways. But I didn't think I'd be able to walk in it because it was so deep. And I, at the time, when he was looking for, when I was looking for his duck that he killed in there, I figured out that I could walk in there. But I was walking not because the water was that shallow, but because I was walking on the vegetation mat. It was thick enough where I could walk on it. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go back there and see if I can walk all the way back to the hole where they're, they're landing in. And thick, it's, thick enough until it wasn't? Yeah, it was thick, exactly. It was thick enough, and I found, oh, I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk and ease over to the edge and try to get maybe where it might be a little more shallow. And the vegetation opened up, and it wasn't that shallow. <laughs> I had went all, all the way. I'd managed in wader, in breathable waders to keep my head out of the water and, like, belly crawl onto the mat of vegetation and get up out of the water by myself, too, <laughs> out there. Thankfully, I had my phone was still working, and I could get a hold of everybody and let them know I was safe that morning. I finished the hunt about 7.30. I was freezing my butt off soaking wet. <laughs> Don't let him call about, like, this that morning like it was – you know, last season, this was two days ago. That was, that was yeah. Thursday. That was yesterday morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, I was by myself. Thankfully, my phone it was working and everything. That is one of my fears that, uh, you know, none of us get off the rock alive. But I continually put myself in positions where I really hope things don't go too wrong because I don't want my wife to have to go around and tell everybody how she lost her husband and be it something where people are just looking at her like you were married to a fool. I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> everybody on this podcast and everybody listening to this podcast has been there. I, But I, I'm, I'm now going to turn 50. I'm really starting to make better decisions finally <laughs> if my mother is listening to this just like about time yeah. <laughs> there's there's been plenty of times where you look back on a situation and you're like how just <laughs> i could make I it yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how did i manage to let that happen i can do that <laughs> hold my beer yeah, yeah. yeah. the exactly. worst part about it is there's usually not even beer involved this is all stuff we do stone sober yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, you got to class this up, man. This is going downhill fast. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, like, I've been in situations since I started hunting that I couldn't even fathom five years ago. And it's like, I'm like, how, how am I, what, how did I get here? But you know what? It's like, and I look back on it and I'm like, all right, that was actually kind of fun, you yeah. know? And I'm like, if, if somebody, if I, and I, I tell, you know, I'll tell a story to a friend and they're like, how was like wh why like how was that fun? Why did you enjoy that? Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's like I I don't know, but it's just kind of cool. 
But did you like die? Sinking a, sinking <laughs> a John boat, like, and it was cold and wet and it was terrible. But, like, you know, hey, now I look back on it. <laughs> you look I back on it and laugh. Yeah. You know, that, that's true about hunting, though. We all, every, of course, we all like to tell a, a brief success story, but the best stories are not where, oh, you know, I went out there, set everything up, set up, and bam, killed a deer, or went out, killed 13 quail or something like that. It's always the story that didn't go to plan yeah. that really gets people laughing around no the doubt. fire. Well, speaking of that, not going to plan, there's another story you're involved with. And, and my best stories, again, I like ones that, you know, let me guess Jim's involved in all of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't his fault. So generally when we go quail hunting, we go out before sun up and we'll kind of like spread out a little bit, drop a person off, and we want to listen for a quail whistle, right? So it kind of like helps our chances. So when just randomly walking through the woods, like let's kind of spread out. The quail are gonna whistle right at sun up. They're gonna whistle, try to, you know, covey up or um, communicate and so We'll try to listen for them, and, and uh, you know, if we hear them, hey, we know where to start the hunt. So one morning we're out, and there's three of us out there, and I drop Jim off and another guy. And um, on the way back to pick him up, I was driving at the time, ironically, um, a Ford F-150 that Jim now owns that I own. That he my bought. son's truck, yeah. Yeah. yeah was, he loves so, that uh, thing. Turns out the low fuel light doesn't really work on that truck. And um, we're out in the middle of the woods <laughs> and not really paying attention to the fuel situation. And uh, I ran out of gas at Triple N Ranch in the middle of a wildlife management area. And uh, so we all walked back to the truck and we're like, okay, what now? Well, thankfully, one of the guys had a relative that lived in a town not too far away, and he was going to bring us gas, which was very kind of him. And we're like, all right, well, we didn't hear any quail whistle, um, I, and uh, I guess we're going to start the hunt here, right where I ran out of gas, because like that's pretty much uh, the only option. And um, we get out of the truck, we kind of get our gear on and get the guns going, and we start walking, and we took about... I don't know. Ten, ten steps. steps. Yeah. <laughs> ten steps in the woods. And Murphy goes on point. And like, what are the chances? Like, you know, we have like 20,000 acres out here. And we we hunted here. The only reason we started there is because I ran out of gas. Yeah, we we clobbered them that day. You got, and it was gotta, like one of the best days we ever had. So yeah. picked up. I remember those are the first time I picked up a double on quail. You sent me the video the other day. Yeah. Yeah, Tim. Tim got that on camera. That was that was a great day of quail. So as embarrassing as it was to run out of gas, and uh, I'm never going to live that down with these two guys, but uh, it turned out to be, like, one of the best hunts we've had out there. So let's go ahead and, and, and draw this down. Um, at the end of every episode, we'd like to do what we call the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. So... Brian, what what would be your tip of the week? So uh, you're supposed to like you know let me know before we start this podcast. <laughs> we do this, so. Don't worry, it catches us all by surprise. Uh, that <laughs> was Jim's fault because right. I sent him the outline. If he didn't send it to you, that that's all Jim's fault. Indeed. 
I, I set you up on purpose. Man, on the spot. I mean, you can't say don't run out of gas. We already covered that. Yeah, don't <laughs> run out of gas. I mean, I mean, really, just get out and do it. You know, get out and find somebody. You know, this isn't like very specific here on a specific tip, but I say find somebody that hunts and ask them to tag along. You know, and and uh, I mean, I I would imagine I guess most folks listening to this are already hunters, but like if you want to do something new, something different, you know, if you've never hunted over a bird dog or never duck hunted, like just find somebody that's done it and do it because uh i've done a lot in the last five years that i never in a million years thought i would do and it's because i've met people that have kind of taken me out show me the way so i don't know if that's a tip or not but no i mean that's what i got that's great you know i'll I'll go ahead next before i do that i'm gonna go ahead and take the opportunity to plug and i'm gonna say if you're looking to get into hunting you are more than welcome to contact us on facebook or via email at underpressureoutdoors at gmail or join if you're in florida join the the florida backcountry hunters and anglers uh because we are always always putting on these hunting events i mean last weekend we you saw the pictures if you're part of the page of us out there just shooting some squirrels and having a great time the camaraderie there i mean we spent what 30 minutes around the fire before we ever left to go and early in the morning to go hunt squirrels yeah absolutely and then jordan and i had a great conversation sitting around a duck hole waiting for that solitary wood duck we were really hoping it was going to come yeah. back one more time uh, but give jim another shot <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I hit that duck it was just 45 50 yards out <laughs> i have uh I have preached this over multiple episodes, and I'm going to go ahead and hammer it in again because upland bird hunters make it look the prettiest, and that is safety. I, you know, I wear an orange vest when I deer hunt, but uh, it just doesn't look as classy as as the birds <laughs> vet, the bird vests do. You know, you you look at an upland bird hunter and those those orange vests, the orange, the way they accent the orange is just so classy classy is the best word for it the way they do it but being safe man this comes down to we just talked about it the the stupid situations we've put ourselves in and man and and turned back and gone man that was stupid but you just got to be safe it comes to gun safety wearing your orange knowing where everybody's at that's what really makes a good hunt no doubt you know when it when it comes to quail hunting too, I've I feel like one story is is too many, but I have heard several stories of people not being safe over other people's like gun dogs or quail dogs, and in the unfortunate event a dog's you know been injured or or life taken because somebody was not safe over that working dog. Yeah. Heck, the vice president of the United States shot a guy in the face. And that's not yeah. supposed to be a crack at that guy as far as it just it happens, right? And I don't have any reason to think that Dick Cheney's not otherwise a responsible person, but he did shoot a guy in the face. <laughs> he did. <laughs> He's never going to live that down. No. <laughs> never. No, he gets a lot of flack for other things, but the biggest thing that I'll ever give him crap for is you shot a guy in the face. He, he, was, he was, what, pheasant? 
hunting? I think he was quail hunting. The quail? In Texas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, there's still, I, I got to imagine that was a very low moment for him. And, and all kidding aside, I can't imagine a worse feeling hunting experience-wise than you've, you've accidentally shot someone. It's terrible. So yeah. safety well, paramount. You know, when we talk about safety in bird hunting in particular, that comes to knowing your swings. You know, know where everybody's at. You need to shoot your sector and your sector only uh, because you shouldn't be shooting over somebody else's head. You you should be stay, staying in your lane. And that's the best way to, to maintain that safety aspect. I, I will not shoot a cripple if the dog's in the water. No, absolutely not. happening. Not. I'm not taking the chance of hitting the dog. Your, your dog can handle a cripple. <laughs> Honestly, I mean... If if your dog can't handle a cripple, then you need to train uh, your dog. The only time I can see if, if you're in deep water, because I don't know if the dog's going to be able to swim fast enough to catch the duck. But even then, I'd I'd call the dog back, shoot the crippled. Jim Briar, what do you got? Oh man, um, I'm I'm at a loss right now. I. I would. I'm going to go back to the R3 thing. I'll, I'll fill you in. I'll fill in for you while you're, right. you're thinking. Um, I would like to think that there's probably some sportsmen listening to this podcast that haven't been out in the field for a while. And in the R3 model, when we think about retention, retention basically starts when a hunter goes out for their second hunt. And uh, if you really get into the philosophies and the sociology behind it, everybody has a lapse. I don't care if the lapse is because turkey season ended and there's not really anything to hunt until either alligators or one of my favorites, moorhen, starts up in September. But we've had this lapse and sometimes life gets in the way, whether it's family or job and all noble things that, that get in the way. But if you're hearing this podcast and your shotgun is collecting dust, I would greatly encourage you to come out to a BHA event or just call one of your buddies. Uh, take advantage of any of the multiple WMAs that we have throughout the state of Florida, or if you're not in Florida, go find some public land in your area and get out there and get re-engaged with hunting. It's um, I think of it like a fire that if you take a coal away from the fire, it'll glow for a little while. But eventually it goes out. But all you have to do to reignite that coal is just reintroduce to the fire, and it's like it's never left. And I think a lot of you who may have, who may be listening to this that haven't been in the woods in a while, it's all it's going to take is one time back in the woods, you know, get that shotgun or that rifle unloaded and uh, yeah, smell the gunpowder, and I think it'll all come back to you, and you'll be right back into it like you haven't left. Hope you enjoy it. All right, well, I got something now. And... It probably isn't real popular, but I know I'm considering doing it, especially if I'm in an area that I'm unfamiliar with. I think I'm going to start wearing uh, at least a light, one of those inflatable uh, life jackets when I'm wading, in case I do go for a swim again. That would have come in uh, real handy the other day, is if I had a life vest, one of those, at least with a small, lightweight something that will inflate. You know, that's not even something people really think about. You you think about a life vest. You think about being in the boat, going somewhere in the boat. Uh, but to wear that life vest when you're waiting can can really come in handy as well. 
I mean, and that goes for like trout fishermen too that wait a lot. I mean, it doesn't take much to slip in one of those creeks, especially if you're like in North Carolina or something fly fishing. It doesn't take much at all to to slip on a rock. Yeah. No, you know, and I think sometimes as men we think that if we take these rather inconsequential steps towards being prepared and being safe, that somehow it diminishes our our tough guyness. Um, But I imagine the cemeteries are littered with guys that if you could resurrect them and ask them if they would have, what would you have done different? (laughs) I'd have worn that life vest, I'd have taken that extra step, you know. So uh, that's probably a whole other podcast we could do on emergency preparedness and, and uh, wilderness survival. But um, don't go into the woods unprepared. Don't go out in the water unprepared because, you know, it all works out until it doesn't. Your tip should be wear snake boots. Yeah. yeah. I think that comes because I got popped by a rattlesnake for the first time in my life last week, about a four-footer, so... Uh, Snake boots saved me a trip to the ER. So, yeah, another pro tip. So, I'll tell you this. If you're looking for a podcast on how to fix yourself in a really crappy situation, we did a podcast on an episode one titled, or I say episode one, season one, titled Boo-Boos and Band-Aids. Where we, I featured a good buddy of mine who is a flight medic in the army, and we talked all kinds of injuries uh, that you could sustain in the field that are extremely easy to sustain in the field. How you can prevent those, and how you can provide self aid to yourself in the field to get you to the next level of medical care or back to the house in general. And that, that was really informative. I, I have a background in uh, emergency medicine, and but not to the extent that this guy does. I mean, immense amount of training and a lot of experience. And uh, so if you're looking for something on that, I would go back and revisit that episode. It was a great episode. So, Jim, Brian, I, I really appreciate you guys joining us this week. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. I think it's going to try to be a great episode. A lengthy one, but, yeah, thanks for letting us ramble. Thanks real, for having real me. Real quick before we, uh, before we call it quits, um, I forgot your name again. I'm Brian. 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 Tell our people how, uh, what's their easiest way if they're looking, if they have a dog, what's their easiest, you know, per NAVDA, what's their easiest way to get involved with NAVDA? If you want, if you either have a dog or you want to get into bird hunting, um, you go to, it's NAVDA, um, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association.org. Um, and there's a, a Florida chapter. It's the Florida Palmetto NAVDA chapter. So you can just Google that, find it. I mean, it's, I think it's $75 membership a year. And, uh, we've got training sessions, um, in multiple parts of the state that you can uh, attend. There's, snake avoidance training of course um if you join the national chapter i think it's maybe a hundred dollars a year and you get a uh, subscription to a monthly magazine with training tips and stories and just all kinds of helpful information so 
just a great community um, to be a part of. And, uh, yeah, so you can find it easily. And, like I said, there's a, a great, great chapter right here in Florida that people can join and uh, become a member and start getting out and bird hunting with their dog. Awesome. So I'll tell you this. You got NAVDA, and if you are looking to join BHA, you have to look no further from this episode on out than the podcast description. There's going to be a link at the bottom. Uh, Jim, what is that? Backcountryhunters.org. And for those that might listen to this, uh, this before hunting, small game hunting season ends, it's backcountryhunters.org slash events it'll bring you up to a map in florida right now looks like a pin cushion with all of the different points that we have that we're going to be holding small game events you're welcome to come out meet some fellas i think you're going to enjoy some camaraderie and have a lot of fun so you guys will be able to literally if you're going to listen to this podcast you read about what it's about at the bottom you're going to see our link to our facebook page link to our facebook group link to Instagram, and then there's going to be that BHA link at the bottom. You can click on that and join right there and become part of all these small game hunts and all the awesome things we get to do with BHA. And you'll be right there with us. Get to meet us, greet us, and hunt with us. Hallelujah. And I can't thank the crew from uh, Under Pressure Outdoors for all the support that they've given to the hunting community and especially BHA. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yes, sir.